Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Gateway brought to you by the Northern Illinois University College of Business where your future is without boundaries and our approach is to. I am joined as always with my incredible co-host Dr. Biagio Palese. Hello Biagio! Ciao a tutti! Welcome, welcome to another great episode. For this episode, Psyching Up Psychology... The Gateway is proud to welcome Emily Towner, a third-year PhD student in psychology at the University of Cambridge and a Gates Cambridge scholar. Emily studies adolescence and the brain and is interested in learning, mental health, and understanding the impacts of stress and social interactions during development. She is currently training in the Developmental Cognitive Neuroscience Lab led by Professor Sarah Jane Blakemore. Her PhD research focuses on social isolation in adolescence, where she is investigating the effects of isolation and loneliness on fear, learning, and mental health through the use of high-definition magnetic Residence imaging. She is also exploring structural associations between the brain and one's response to social isolation. In addition, she hopes to examine whether virtual social interactions, such as the use of smartphones and social media, might mitigate or exacerbate the effects of social isolation. Emily, welcome to The Gateway. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so I, I always like to start these conversations right at the beginning. So if you can give me kind of some context of what brought you to do the research you're doing, what are you trying to accomplish when you're looking at adolescence, you're, you're doing a lot of things. So if you can just give me a 30,000 foot view and then we can kind of dive in deeper. Okay, that's interesting. Hard to know where to start. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I guess the reason I'm interested in adolescence is that it's such a dynamic time. So researchers studying development, developmental psychology in the past really thought that, you know, the early years of life and childhood were when, you know, all the changes to your psychology and your brain and your development were happening. But over the past basically about 10 years, maybe a little bit longer, we've realized that that's just completely not true at all. Um, mostly due to the advent of things like um, fMRI, where you can take, you know, pictures of people's brains in real time, in real life. But um, even before that, you know, people were doing studies on postmortem brains and things and started to realize that uh, the brain was still really changing up until about age 25. So uh, we consider adolescence to be the age between, between 10 and 25. Um, which is a huge range and, and extends quite a bit longer than most people think. Uh, but we like to say that it's kind of the, the age when you establish your independent role in society. So that can also be influenced by cultural factors, you know, when, uh, how long you're in education, how long you uh, take to, you know, get married and get a job and um, these things. But interestingly, these kind of biological, neurobiological changes are pretty consistently happening up to about age 25 um, across uh, all cultures. And I think it's when things are changing, that's really interesting. It's because it's when you can influence the system, when the environment has the greatest impact on your behavior. Um, so I think that it's a time of, we often call it a time of vulnerability and opportunity, uh, which I really like, because it's it's just a critical time to have both experiences that will lead to your growth and healthy development and mental health. Um, but it's also a time that you need to be careful, you know, what you do, um, what you're exposed to, because those can also have more serious implications for your um, later adult life. So I guess that's why, yeah, that's why I'm interested in adolescence as a, <laughs> a stage. Emily, you already got me like, I had chills just hearing about that. Stuff. So, so like already, I'm like, okay, this is w w way more than even what I was aware of. And thank you for defining adolescence. Cause that, that I think a lot of people are like, you mean like three years old or you mean like, you know, 18, what are we? So, so that's important. I, I'll, when I'm hearing that stuff, I automatically start 
thinking about the debate of which which I know is more just it's fun to talk about but like that nature nurture debate and and some of it is saying hey during this adolescent period the the environment the 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 nurture the elements that you're putting in and you're experiencing can dramatically impact a lot of things more than maybe what we kind of give it credit for is that is that mm-hmm. all right Yeah, and that's actually kind of how we define these things called sensitive and critical periods. So they used to call them critical periods, where it was this idea that there's certain stimuli or certain experiences that you have to have during this specific time to uh, develop in a certain way, right? So this was the studies way back in like the 60s or the 70s, where they deprived cats of vision early in Mm -hmm. life. And Mm -hmm. those cats never developed normal sight after that, um, because that was a critical period of time where they needed to develop those brain regions that are responsible for vision. Um, Whereas if you deprive an adult of vision and then not for the same period of time, they're totally fine. So now we're starting to think that there's these kind of biological vision, like more of than on the nature side, there's these periods where certain things are kind of expected. uh, And then that's different across different periods, right? So it's vision really early in life, because that's the time when that's a very early kind of sensory process. And then it's, you know, higher cognitive skills later in life. So that's why if you learn a second language by the age of 12, uh, you can pretty much reach fluency with no accent. But if you learn it after age 12, uh, it's a lot more difficult to do that. And most of the time, if it's after 12, you'll always have a slight bit of an accent or not necessarily native fluency, even if you get really, really good at that language. And that's because these brain regions involved in language processing are um, kind of closing their sensitive period a little bit later. Um, And then what I'm interested in is kind of this new idea that there might be these like emotional sensitive periods. So uh, those are even kind of, if you think of it on a scale of complexity, Uh, emotional intelligence and emotional capability and functioning is even a bit like more complex than, um, you know, cognitive and language functions. So that might be pushed out even later um, to the adolescent period where you're learning how to, you know, regulate your emotions and your uh, experiences during that time can have a really profound impact on your emotional development. Um, But it can also maybe be a time to, um, change your emotional functioning that might have been um, disrupted from an earlier time or, um, you know, really to work on things that you might be struggling with. Um, So yeah, it's kind of this, it's this like, now we call them sensitive periods, because it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily that you can't get that response or that behavior later at a different time. Uh, But it's that these certain times were kind of biologically predisposed to be really like receptive to this kind of information. So Emily, at least in in Western culture, and I'm I'm going to even narrow it down to say uh, Midwest United States. Uh, when it comes to adolescence, a, a lot of the older um, thinking, and I'm not speaking from an academic point of thinking I'm thinking more of like parents and all that stuff is like yeah they're gonna run and hit their head on something and they're gonna do all this stupid stuff and we'll just deal with it and they'll be okay um and, and and maybe that's not always the best mentality. Like, like you're saying that there's an impact to some of those things happening during these sensitive periods more than maybe what we've identified previously. Yeah, but I think we've also kind of, so a lot of the academics actually used to say, you know, adolescence is this period of like storm and stress and chaos yeah. and all this stuff. And I think that's how, you know, parents still kind of think of it, but we've kind of moved more to thinking of it as like, maybe there is an adaptive purpose for these things. So we're kind of trying to think what goals in this developmental stage would require these kind of behaviors that we think might be a little bit crazy as adults or, um, you know, so something like um, we find that adolescents are very explorative, is that a word? Exploratory. (laughs) Exploratory. So um, even in really simple tasks where adults are really good at evaluating the high value choice and always exploiting that high value choice, adolescents are more likely to test the different choices, even if they um, haven't, you know, recognized in the past that this is a high value choice just to see in case uh, contingencies are changing or to sample new things going on. And it's thought that this might be because they don't have as much experience yet. They're kind of learning about their different environment and they're kind of, uh, uh, you know, sampling a bunch of different things. So actually being a bit exploratory could be, you know, adaptive 
in that you need to you need to separate from your parents you need to go out into the world explore things learn things and bring that with you into your adult life mm. I, that makes me feel a little bit better about my adolescence so, so thank you for that Diageo you're gonna say something I'm sorry. yeah I wanted to jump into this and I mean again thank you so much for joining us uh, I think the by just looking at what you and your lab work are doing is extremely fascinating and and I think it's extremely relevant and and, and important because as you said mo- many of the study like comes from an area where uh, you know uh, for example, I was growing up in a small town in Italy and I was exposed through all my life to a certain people and certain experiences, which at, back in the days were like the norm and, and that kind of formed me in the way I'm thinking about stuff. But uh, now I have a daughter of three years old, which is born in a global world that she's been traveling. She has been exposed to the internet and technology and stuff like that. And so uh, I can only imagine how different her brain or her way of processing stuff is compared to mine and uh, and so like there needs to be research that takes into account about the you know the new uh, way of uh the, the the larger information that you are exposed to the the fact that we live in a global world and that you know we are exposed to different things in different ways with different you know channels and mm-hmm. is there like uh I would say something that capture your attention and you're focusing on in that direction and uh i mean i'm a technology guy so like what is the role of technology in in all this uh and i know yeah. this probably is a three hours talk and it's very <laughs> difficult to, yeah. to summarize but uh yeah that's truly fascinating to me yeah it's a great question and it's it's something i'm really interested in too uh another big aspect of our lab is uh, looking at you know social psychology in adolescence because the social world takes on such huge importance during adolescence more than any other time uh, in life for kind of some of those reasons that I said before as well and you know now with with the internet and with social media it's amplifying that and you have the chance for even more social connections and social influences and social experiences uh, than ever before so it's a really kind of new field looking at social media and how that influences development right now it's a bit all over the place because most of the studies have been just correlational which Mm. as you know is is so difficult to tease apart whether you know there's been you know there's so many things in the news always that say you know social media is linked to you know worse mental health in teens especially uh and they have these you know big splashy headlines and they're quite uh you know like very attend like headline grabbing about it um and I think the evidence is not really there for that because these big studies that have kind of found these relationships again correlational you know it's it's it could be literally one survey item um that they've looked at over time uh self-reported amount of social media use which is not necessarily the best metric and then uh one study found that the there was a negative impact of social media use on mental health, but it was about as negative as wearing glasses has on your mental health. So even if these okay. effects are significant, they might be really small and you know how important they really are is, is very up for debate. Um, our lab does a lot of work on social media is starting to get into this kind of digital uh, world. And uh, that's one thing I'm interested in is um, whether virtual social interactions can uh in can help at all you know with uh with loneliness so my main phd project is actually looking at social isolation in adolescence uh so this was a study that we conducted we ran it my first year and now i um, just started my third year and we've been analyzing the data and so we're looking we did an actual experimental study where we brought teenagers into the lab and isolated them for several hours and then did a bunch of testing. And we also did a 7T, which is a really strong high definition uh, MRI scan of their brains. Uh, And we're looking at isolation, but we also had a condition where they were allowed to have virtual social interactions. So they could use their phones, their computers, social media, all those things. So another thing we're interested in is comparing um, isolation to isolation with virtual interactions and seeing whether when they're allowed to have this kind of social media experiences, is that more like their baseline when they've had in-person interactions, or is that more like when they're completely isolated? So is it kind of mitigating any of these potentially negative effects of being isolated or not? 
Emily, that sounds like a really smart way to to decipher some of the things from the headlines that grab and be like, oh, everyone's going to, you know, <laughs> do really bad things to themselves because of so social media instead of saying, where are we really at with that? I just anecdotally, if we walked around and asked adults, I think the common thinking would be like, yes, yeah, social media is bad for 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 adolescents, for for teenagers, for people in that one. Like, I, I feel like we've been conditioned with, with that from media perspectives. And, and I find it like your research to be very interesting within that to try and decipher what does this really look like? Cause we all know that there's some, there's some things that have been beneficial, at least during the pandemic. If I didn't have some of those things, I know I would have been far worse, um, completely isolated than that one. So, um, thank you so much for, for doing that stuff. I, it's very, very important. And I, I think it's easy to just kind of pick the the attention grabbing things than than actually looking into that stuff too Russ, yeah, yeah. if i can jump on this i think it's mm-hmm. one point that she made is very important is correlation is not causation and and it's very easy to find the correlation uh and you know the the the, the news and what it comes with it is it's um it's part of uh you know have those big addings but uh you know rigor and uh you know conducting a study like that i i think it's uh is kudos to this lab and the work Emily is doing. I think it's it's really important. But on the other side of things, though, I, I also think, Russ, to be honest, is when you're talking about social media and teenagers, some of them are not built for teenagers, right? So you have to fake your age to, to be into it. So like the content that goes into it might affect, uh, I mean, I don't know what type of uh, settings you, you run and what, what you allow them in your experiment to, to see, but there is definitely some content that is not appropriate. Uh, if I think about those challenges that they have, that some of them are so unsafe and, and kids at those age don't understand that and they ended up like, you know, killing themselves and stuff like that. I mean, I think that that's a big component of, of the social media space and what what I, as a parent, I should enable my daughter to, to be exposed to. So like, uh, again, that's, that's something to always keep in mind. Right? So, so Biagio is asking Emily what, what he should do for his daughter to make sure she doesn't do anything. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Well, first, I just wanted to say to, uh, to the experimental side, um, I have to shout out to Livia Tomova and uh, Amy Orban from my group and also a new group here that studies digital mental health because they are like the primary people in pushing forward doing experiments in this space, um, which is really important. Um, and I definitely think that so during so in our experiment, they were allowed to do whatever they normally did on their phones. We didn't really regulate that. We did measure a bit what they were doing and how long they were doing it for, but we didn't uh, explicitly tell them what to do. Um, I, you make a great point. Yeah. And it's it's so interesting because it's 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 like in today's world, how do you prevent it? Like I just listened to the daily. I don't know if you listen to that, but mm-hmm. there's a, it was the, about the books, right. And how they were banning certain books because it had inappropriate content. And I, I was thinking, oh my gosh, but like they could find that content anywhere on the internet. Like it's, it's just, you know, there's so much information everywhere and it's information overload. So I don't know if, if uh, I'm not a parent, but I don't know if like um, making you know, these things harder to access will work or if they'll find a way around it, or if it's maybe being really proactive and teaching kids how to deal with these difficult feelings that come up or, uh, you know, talking about these things proactively before, before it becomes a problem. Um, I think the one good thing about kids these days is they do seem a lot more open and communicative. Uh, and I think that's one way that social media has kind of helped in a way is that, you know, people of all different types of you know, whatever you're interested in, you can find a community that online that is, you know, uh, aligned with that, which, which can help so much as we know, you know, social interaction is especially important for um, adolescents and feeling isolated is, is related to all kinds of mental and physical health problems um, across the whole lifespan, but uh, especially in adolescents. I think, uh, sorry, sorry, Russ, I'm jumping uh, all over, but uh, I, I mean, to be honest, I, I think about myself growing up and, and the kids nowadays and uh, how, as a parent, I think it would be more challenging because my mom was leaving me outside the house and I was playing with a ball pretty much all day and I was happy and content and maybe watching a few cartoons on TV and maybe sometimes 
play on video games, but that's what was about it, right? That's mm -hmm. what, what I was exposed to. And, and again, there are the beauty of it and the negative of it that I, I'm a tech guy, so I love technology. And I think social media brought so much good things, like the fact that people have a platform to share also some negative experiences and kind of relieves and make it other people to feel like, okay, we can accept those experiences. We shouldn't be ashamed. We should be the people that brought us to those experiences to be ashamed of what they did, right? So that's that's huge. I think many people had a lot of troubles and didn't communicate just because they were ashamed of that, that they were looking at mental health as a negative thing where... You know, it's part of our life, and we have to cope with it mm -hmm. uh, because, again, uh, it's it's where we live. And and to be honest with you, I stopped using social media for for a bit in the past few months because I was looking at comments related to topics where mm -hmm. you know they they really like put me like upset and nervous about it just because like how can you be so ignorant or how can you think that you know those stuff and you are entitled to to, to talk about those topics where you don't know where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. you know it's, it's 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 challenging it's very challenging i see the benefits and and i see the the negative side of things and then when it comes to kids and people that human beings that we're forming i think that you know we can use parental control but we need to be very very uh stressed as parents to see what they have access to because right. i mean as you said they will form them for the rest of their life and we want good people to be formed we don't want like you know mm -hmm those kids to be affected by that so again, yeah this this study are like so uh so interesting for me and uh, i'm glad there are people smart as you that they are conducting that <laughs> oh thanks i um i yeah i definitely relate to what you say about the the comments and things when especially when you put yourself out there you know doing uh you know interviews and doing videos and things it's 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 crazy the amount of like really mean things i think people don't um they wouldn't say it to your face, but they feel more comfortable saying it behind a screen because they're they're a bit safe. And so I think it leads to a lot of disinhibition with regards to what people say. Uh, but it, it's funny, like as much as you think, oh, you know, when you see it happening to someone else, oh, that, I, that's not a big deal. Who cares? Like when, when you get those comments, it really does, you know, mm -hmm. like it's very, it's more impactful even, you know, to me as an adult than, uh, than I would have thought. And I think as a teenager, I I don't know how I would have handled that. Um, I also think that one downfall of social media that I think people don't think about is just how distracting it is because we have so much stimulation in our environment that I think, um, I think more so, and I mean, I'm not, we're not, it's not definitive what the mental health effects yet are of, of using social media, but just the fact that our attention is completely divided all the time and uh, we can be reached at any second. And uh, I think it's getting harder and harder for people to concentrate on things for longer than, you know, brief chunks of time with their phones going off and uh, their, you know, texts going off and their phones vibrating. And I think this is already really difficult for teenagers because they're really developing this cognitive control this like prefrontal regions of their brain which are the last regions to develop in you know your your early to mid 20s uh it's even uh, it's, so it's even harder for them to focus and i just can't even imagine having the constant pull of the phone and all of the information going on uh when i'm trying to study or focus or do anything that that was literally one of the things i wanted to ask you i guess sorry Ross. but but I, that that's i like this was something I was thinking. I, I see myself like sometimes I bombarded by messages and I can't get in distracted. But I see the same thing in my daughter when she's overstimulated by like a cartoon or whatever. Like I try to speak to her and she's it's like she's not even there. I literally need to say, hey, I'm speaking to you right now. Like, can oh, I need to pause the TV. Otherwise, there is no chance for her to answer that. Do you think yeah. that this is going to uh, like affect us in in the long term where we focus more on this virtual world rather than actually living our life and focusing on you know our human real human interaction uh and and and, and again that can be some some very negative connotation associated to that yeah yeah I mean a few years ago I would have said yes I think we're moving towards that but actually 
after the pandemic, I feel like people really were really dissatisfied with their virtual interactions. Like mm. it's great to have as a supplement, I think, to your in-person interactions, but it was kind of like heartwarming in a way that everyone was so excited to get back to in-person interactions. And like, if I never have to go to another Zoom birthday party in my life, I will, <laughs> that is totally fine with me. I could not do it <laughs> again. Um so I don't know. I think there is something, there's something about in-person interactions. I mean, that's what we're finding in our study, uh, that in-person interactions are just so much more, so much stronger than these virtual interactions. And I think, yeah, I think they might become, I think they'll, they'll always be a good supplement, but I, I don't personally think they'll replace in-person interactions. Yeah. Emily would, when I think back on the the history of, of psychology and, and and where that that came from, you, you know, when when we're thinking of all of the the great names that people just toss out, like Freud and Jung and Piaget, all those all those just things, um, I, I automatically start to kind of push that aside because. I'm far more intrigued by an fMRI scan or, or things like that stuff. Are, are we as as humanity um, are we finally bridging the 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 gap of psychology and that science and saying no, this isn't just a social science. This isn't just thinking. This is actual science, and we know what's happening, and we can say that stuff. There is that. Where have we already been there? Am I ignorant? Am I missing things? Or are we still far away? Or where does that kind of, from your perspective, happen? Yeah, there's there's an interesting study actually that that looks at uh, people's how much they how much credibility they think a study has based on whether or not it has an MRI scan in the study. <laughs> oh, okay, so I'm not like I, I'm falling right into that. I'm like, oh, that's and real. People, <laughs> and people uh, people find it much more credible when there's a brain scan in the study, um, even when the information is the same. Uh, so I think uh, no, I think that's a really common that's a really common thing. And I mean, I'm super interested in the brain, and that's that's been my training goal of my whole PhD is to to learn how to to collect and analyze, you know, imaging data of the brain and, and relate that to psychology. Um, I think there's still a ton we don't know about the brain given our methodology. So we have these scanners, right? And they can take pictures of your brain, but basically what we're doing is estimating blood flow based on uh, the iron content in your blood that, that flows to one area of your brain uh, when there's activity there. And, uh, that's why an MRI uses a magnet because it can take pictures using this magnetic field of the iron um, and the hemoglobin and the hemodynamic response function is something we model after based on um, a series of pretty coarse pictures that are taken every two seconds, usually for an fMRI. So we can get on a roughly two second time scale and there's a delay in the, in the response function. Um, a pretty coarse regional picture of changes in activity. So I think it's really important to note that there, there's just a lot of limitations with that. Uh -huh. um, as, a, as a method, I think it's the best method we have right now to study the living human brain while it's actually doing things. Um, but I think there's a lot of also media kind of headlines that are like, you know, oh, we can read your mind uh, based on a brain scan. They might mean you can decode, they, we can decode whether you're looking at a dog or a water bottle. <laughs> but that, that might be about <laughs> the level that we're at, although um, we are getting better at these kind of machine learning prediction uh, algorithms and implementing those to neuroimaging data. So like I was just saying, looking at, you know, a region of the visual cortex, seeing the patterns and comparing those patterns to um, when you're looking at dogs versus looking at water bottles. And uh, it can predict and classify what you're looking at just on the neural signal based on that. So that is a really cool new machine learning approach that I think is going to be much more successful in creating more re reproducible results rather than in the past, we've kind of, um, 
instead of using those techniques, looked at you know very small regions of activation and basically just looked at differences in conditions. So is this region activated when they're doing this condition versus this condition? And while that tells you something interesting, it only really tells you about that region. And just a minor statistical thing, there's hundreds of thousands of voxels across the whole brain. Um, and so when you're doing these analyses, you have to basically correct for the hundreds of thousands of comparisons because uh, you're bound to find some statistical significant, statistically significant activation. And there was a really good study about this in a uh, salmon. You might've seen it. They scanned a dead salmon and they found a significant region of um, brain activation <laughs> in the salmon because um, of statistical anomalies. So um, I think just there's always some caution to be taken with, with these studies. But I actually think that um, a lot of the behavioral studies, the more traditional psychological studies, um, are quite robust, actually. And people don't think of them often as very scientific, but they are some of the, the strongest effects and the um, most robust and reproducible findings that we find, especially in, in uh in fields like cognitive psychology, looking at you know cognitive biases, um, attentional biases, things like that. Those are really quite robust findings and those are only behavioral. So I think the challenge now is kind of, um, well, we've already gone through the whole reproducibility crisis in psychology and I think we're kind of moving past that now. Um, I think now the challenge is is doing this kind of cognitive neuroscience approach and, and aligning that with some of these behavioral results. I think converging evidence will be our best um, tool kind of going forward. Um, I probably sound like a super skeptical scientist right now. MRI has lots of cool stuff, but <laughs> I just uh, thought I should point out it's uh, caveats. <laughs> well, again, it, it's showing what you're saying. It, it, we, we live, I think, in our perceptions and absolutes a lot of times that it's like, well, I read this one headline and now this is it. And you're like, well, hold on. There, there, it's, it's not ever absolute. And we can always improve on that one. Um, and going off of that then, and, and this might be more of a, of a challenging question for you. It might be really easy. I don't know. Um, what is something you would like to be able to answer? Like, so there's no constraints. If if you, not that I'm like all for tossing ethics out the window, but if you could do whatever you wanted to do to, to get it, but you could get an answer, what is like the question you would like answered that you could say, I am certain, or I have a much greater idea of that one. Where is that for you? Hmm, that's a good question. I think about this a lot when I'm trying to plan new studies. <laughs> right, well, ex exactly. I, I think a lot of people do. And you're like, okay, we, we go with constraints a lot of times. And then you're like, all right, well, but what am I, what am I really, what would I like to do? Because I, I think at some point we're going to get there. You know, we, we're, we're getting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tend to think of in like what's what's possible now. Um, so I'm trying to think if, if well, one thing that MRI can't do is is measure like um, like single neurons in humans and uh. neurotransmitters and things. So that would be super cool if you could actually because you can do that in some animal models, um, but you clearly can't do that in humans. That would be really cool um, to really look at on like a cellular level what's going on. Um, I guess in more practical, just like study like big questions. Um, I'm really interested in like social learning and fear learning. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of cool research coming up looking at how we learn fear from other people. There's already a few studies about this. It's called vicarious fear learning. So it's basically the idea that you don't have to experience a threat yourself to necessarily learn about that threat. Uh, so, you know, if you see a friend getting, um, I don't know, shocked by something every time they touch it, you're probably going to learn that you're not, you don't want to touch it yourself. And uh, this is very evolutionarily advantageous in the fact that uh, we don't have to experience the thing ourselves to learn <laughs> from it. Um, so I think, yeah, how we learn from others, I think is really cool. Um, and there's some cool stuff, new stuff to looking at like brain synchrony between people while they're interacting and learning from each other. So that would be quite cool too, I think. It, it, to I, I apologize for my ignorance, but you're meaning like that you're, hey, you're finishing my sentence or we're thinking the same because we spend time together or just. Yeah, just seeing how brain patterns. I don't know that I, I haven't done any of this research yet, so I don't know. 
a ton about it, but it's like looking at patterns of brain activity when you're yeah in conversation or completing the same task and seeing how much those are aligned with each other. They also do this with like physiological measurements. Like you can take, you know, heart rate or skin conductance and see, uh, you know, say a mother and a child were doing a task together and you can see how much their physiological measurements line up with each other. And that could tell you something about, you know, how the child is responding to the mom's learning or, um, you know, yeah, how like in sync they are and how that might predict their like relationship or the child's um, anxiety towards some kind of threatening thing. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So I just think there's a lot of cool social, social learning stuff. Right. Wow. Okay. All right. Um, so I, I, at least again, and I'm putting this in the context of, of America because that's that's where my perspective is. But a lot of times we have conversations about this large umbrella of mental health, and and it's it's really a, a turned into more of a tagline, and it's easy to say, and we need more mental health, and we we care about mental health and all that stuff. Um, but a lot of times we're bringing again our own our own experiences, our own baggage, our, our own things to the, the next generation. You know, Biagio has mentioned his his daughters and all that stuff. And, and I think we all come from people that were trying to do the absolute best they could in the situation it is. Um, but as we gain more knowledge and, and understanding, should we, as maybe the, I look around and I'm an adult now, um, should we be taking that time and saying, okay, I need to to work on that. I need to take some time and, and re-examine that. Or should, should we just be focusing on the next one to say, y'all are, are up next and hopefully you, you get it better than, than we did and, and take it from there. Or does that make any sense at all? Do you mean for the children or for? Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess. Yeah. Cause I think we're unlocking things and, and we have that stuff, but we're still been rate our adolescence was in a very specific area and now we're just kind of moving forward with that one trying to implement that is it more important to focus on them or is or is it mutual or should we be doing work I, I don't know yeah that's a really good question I don't know if there's any like formal kind of scientific literature on that but there is such a huge as a parent there's such a huge impact of your own mental health on your children so mm -hmm it's this whole, it's also, there's this whole field um, that looks at like intergenerational transmission of stress uh, and whether you can actually even um, epigenetically like transfer this stress onto your offspring. Um, and I think that, yeah, I mean, it's always going to be more difficult as an adult, I think, to kind of relearn and reframe these things that may have been these really consistent patterns for your whole life. Uh, but I think there's always, you know, there's always value in doing that. And I think we don't realize how much our, you know, kids and younger people really are responsive to our moods. So it's not just that uh, they're feeling anxious, but they might actually be picking up on anxiety that their parent is feeling. Uh, and there's a ton of research on this in the animal literature and actually, um, uh, a woman from New York, Regina Sullivan, Sullivan uh, does a ton of work uh, about this, actually looking at stress levels of baby mice when they're with their mother. Um, and they would have these different conditions where the mother would be either um, like anesthetized so that she wasn't uh, panicking or panicking. And without even like seeing the mother, the, the, the baby could sense and they reciprocated the emotion of the mother rat. So it's a super powerful cue to children, how your parents and caregivers are, you know, dealing with their own emotions and dealing with that. So I think that it almost might be more important for the parents to, to, to model, you know, successful emotion regulation rather than, um, you know, just putting their kids in therapy or something and telling them to, you know, it's more of a practice what you preach, I guess, kind of <laughs> strategy. Right. And I think a lot that that is that is a lot of times. A well, well, I got my kid into therapy. I've, I've done what I can. And you're like, it's not working. And you're like, well, maybe there's there's some other work that needs to be done elsewhere. Um, I, I'm I'm this is not an academic and I'm not going to hold you to anything. It's just opinion. But from from more adults, maybe that have adolescents or things like that. Is there something that you would strongly recommend 
having or or helping adolescents avoid like hey you know what maybe let's not do hard drugs or like or is that good i don't i don't know i'm not you know like, <laughs> no, but is it something Very... like we know that this is probably not a good thing and and yeah. it's going to continue or it's like no you know what we we recover and we move on I, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Because because the brain is changing so much during that period, like you said, drugs are severely, you know, maladaptive for uh, teenagers, okay. especially because their brains are so plastic, so malleable that any kind of insult to, you know, their their brains could have much longer impacts than, um, you know, if an adult were to do it. Uh, so that's definitely true. And there's a ton of literature on that, even things that people are starting to, you know, think are safe, like marijuana, there's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, well, while it might be safe for adults, there's a, a big literature saying that it can have pretty adverse impacts on uh, adolescents with, you know, long, long-term use over that really sensitive period. Um, other than that, I don't think that there's anything that I would say not to do. I would say the earlier though, that they can start learning emotion regulation, the better. Mm. That means like, you know, um, just, you know, if you, if you're afraid of something approaching it and trying to, you know, expose yourself to things, challenging yourself, um, you know, having healthy habits around, you know, sleep and sleep and, and depression are extremely highly correlated. And I think teenagers, especially skip sleep to, you know, have fun and do all the things they want to do without realizing really how high the cost is to their mental health, um, and performance and adolescents already have a bit of a shifted chronotype. So, uh, they like to stay up later and wake up later. And this is a unique period of their life. And then when they get older and younger, you wake up earlier and go to bed earlier. Um, and that is a bit of a mismatch with often the school schedule as well. Mm -hmm. So there's actually been a big push in some countries to move middle school and high school to later so that teenagers don't have to wake up so early um, and can be more uh, fitting with their regular, with their natural chronotype. Um, yeah. I, lo I love that. I, I so so when you run for Congress or you know the president or whatever you know Prime Minister, I don't know where you're going to be. I know you're <laughs> going to do amazing things, but like I want that to happen because I'm definitely still not a morning person. Um, it's super important to me. I'm always tired, and if I'm tired, I can't do anything. It's really terrible. I like this. We we are friends, Emily Piaggio. You were going to say something? No, I was just like just to uh, to clarify if I understood correctly. So you're saying like if if the child has, for example, some fears, like uh, be a friend and help them like overcome the fears as as soon as possible, rather than just saying like for example, like my daughter doesn't like to go on the bike because I think she's scared of it. So yeah. I thought like okay, let's try you know in a year. Like I don't have to force into her, but like actually what right. you're saying is is actually better to to try to fight the fear as, as soon as it appears rather than, you know, let it sit. That's, that's, that's yeah. So this is actually uh this is pretty much what my PhD is focusing on because I'm using, I'm doing um fear learning after social isolation. So the, the isolation study I told you about. So fear learning is basically when you start to associate things with things you're afraid of, even neutral things. So say your daughter was really afraid of the bike. Um, mm -hmm. Then she might start being really afraid of even like the park where you go to ride the bike. Right. And then she says, oh, I don't want to go to the park. I don't want to do this. And then it kind of generalizes and grows and becomes more and more um, impairing kind of in a way. So um, you definitely have to do this. And this is like, obviously, if it's a, if it's a very serious fear, it should, you know, be done with a therapist or someone um, qualified, but you want to. Um, so one thing that we talk about is extinction learning. So that's when you, you have a fear that you've learned and then over repeated times of experiencing that thing without any adverse consequences, it becomes less scary. So this is like, um, I was terrified of public speaking when I was a teenager uh, and I avoided it like the plague because I was terrified of it, but that just really reinforced this fear that I had. And then I would get up and do it and I would just have a terrible, terrible time. Um, and that would reinforce the fear even more. So it's not just that you're doing it, but it's that you're doing it repeatedly and having a good experience. Like, wow, I did the speech. I was calm. I didn't have a panic attack. Everything was fine. I can do that again. 
And sometimes that means taking really small steps to like, you know, if, if someone's not ready to do something like give a speech, if they're terrified of public speaking, it could be better just to raise their hand in class and say an answer to something, you know, or depending on how, you know, how much that fear has generalized. Um, but there was literally a point in my life where it generalized to the point where I couldn't even answer a question in class because I was so afraid. <laughs> and um, I think had I known about these principles before when I was younger, I might have been able to implement them and gradually kind of reduce that fear way before I was able to. I wasn't really able to until my you know early 20s overcome that fear. And I you know had that from the time I was probably 14 until early 20s, which is quite a long time to be terrified to like speak. <laughs> so um, so yeah, I think there's there's definitely something to, to, yeah, just kind of facing it, but not, but not in a way that's going to be traumatic because that can actually have the other, other consequences, which is so like, can, can I tell you my response to that? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and see, and see, and see if it's actually a good way to do it. So what I did was I uh, bought something so she can come on the bike with me. And when she rides with me, she's totally fine. She actually enjoys like, yeah. the, you know, uh, and, but also I, I bought a bike where I can push her. And when I push her, like she's happy, but I still, the, I think the fear is kind of gone because I put the helmet on and she's, she's not upset about it, but it's still, she's still not passionate about like, just go for a ride and stuff like that. But yeah. I, I was just like curious about like, because <laughs> there's going to be more fear growing up. Like there's always yeah, going to be exactly. fear for, for them. So I was exactly. just thinking about what is the right or wrong approach. Yeah. You know? I mean, that same, that seems like a great approach. Like, you know, you're doing these smaller steps to really mm -hmm you know, make it feel safe and, and enjoyable. And that can help reduce the fear. Whereas like, you know, a wrong approach might be to like stick her on a bike and push her down a hill. Like <laughs> um, <laughs> A very bad approach. I've that seen that. Probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably make it much worse. And, and I think that was, this was much more common, like when we were growing up and yeah. when we were younger, you know, it's like, oh, if your kid's afraid of something, oh, just, just stick them out and, you know, just, oh, they're afraid to just throw them in the pool. Like yeah. it's fine. Yeah. And then I, I actually don't think that's really a great approach, especially for someone who, who is expressing that they're afraid of, uh, you know, it's one thing if maybe they're unwilling because of whatever, but it's another if they're, if they're a truly, really, you know, expressing fear towards the situation, I think that can often make things much worse. And I think that's kind of what I did to myself unknowingly, I would sign up to like audition for the school play. I'm going to overcome my fear. And then it would be terrible because I had, had such a traumatic experience auditioning for the play that I never even didn't, you know, and that was just completely the wrong approach. <laughs> uh, I have one more, Ross. I know we're running out we, of time. I think we need to good. invite Emily back because I have actually more than one. But uh, <laughs> like if if you are like a professor and, and you go in an environment like in class, right, uh, where student uh, is is very difficult to engage with them nowadays. Like uh, sometimes they are disconnected. Sometimes they are afraid to ask questions. Sometimes they are afraid of what other people will judge them based on the question or based on the answer. As you were saying, I think that's a big component of many of my students in class where like, I know they know the answers. I know they are, but they are just scared of this. Uh, what what can be done? Like what, what can we do to make it feel like we really want to help them? We really care about them learning and asking a question is a big component of that because mm -hmm. as much as I can try my best to explain a concept, it might mm -hmm. be that my way of doing it doesn't work for everybody because everybody thinks different and approach that. Is mm -hmm. there like, I don't know, any anything that you can spread with them and with me because I think you can have both sides of the uh, this. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, I think that that's a really good point, too, is I just always remember, you know, hating when, you know, these things were being evaluated or graded, because I'm like, I know the answer, but I'm just really afraid, like, I really can't say it. And I think a lot of that is this social evaluation as well, especially because when you're younger, you know, being evaluated by your peers, it's like this audience effect, you know, you think everyone's looking at you, everyone's listening to your answer, everyone thinks you're dumb, even though they're not, they're not even listening because they're on their computer or something. And you know, <laughs> uh, so it, it just magnifies this, like, you know, this, this terror. I think, um, I think one thing is just creating like a really safe environment for people to speak. So like, you know, always just being very open, you know, with their, like, you know, finding something. And even if their answer was completely wrong, you probably already do this, but finding something that was 
go, oh, like this, oh yes, you make a really good point about this, but blah, you know, I think people are afraid of being wrong as well in front of everyone. So I think that's a big um, thing. I think I was always more comfortable in small groups too, speaking um, as a as a teen. So like, you know, if you can do smaller groups and kind of go around and maybe engage and then maybe just calling, if a professor called on me, I would speak even if I Ooh, didn't want to. <laughs> and uh, I think that can be a little bit also of a way of people you know, like you can say, just what do you think about this? And you can answer and, you know, that's a way of also um, having a small practice of doing something like that without, you know, you don't need to assign, everyone's going to do an individual presentation and come up and tell, teach the whole class, like, you know, just asking someone that you think knows the answer, but won't speak like, oh, do you know, like, what do you think about this? And that they might be more likely to, you know, kind of, and that gives them an out too, if they really don't know that, oh, I actually don't know. <laughs> yeah i mean i tell them there are no stupid questions and you know the fact that we all come from different background and you know your contribution to the class will enrich the whole class and i mean i, I i'm just curious like moving forward if if more and more this uh disengagement happen uh like from a brain standpoint like how do we bring it back and uh, some of the stuff that you mentioned i i already do but uh, yeah i, I, I think, think it's a hard a challenge for us in, in yeah I think I think it's a hard one too because it, it also depends on how big the class is you know how, how well you know each student whether you can actually engage them if you know by name and also just a big class can feel a lot scarier speaking in front of than you know a small seminar. Emily this has been greatly insightful and I, I'm truly truly appreciative of your of your time um but before we we log off here um what's some ways we can kind of follow what you're doing you have any pluggables any ways we can kind of stay in touch and see all of the incredible things you're doing oh yeah so um I have a website it's just emilytowner.com where I have all my social medias I have tiktok instagram it's emily and towner I think on all of my social media. I have Twitter if anyone's still there, even though it's imploded, which is very sad. Um, for me, because academics used to be on Twitter and now they're gone. That's uh, also well, I, awesome. <laughs> yeah, per perfect. Thank you. When um, in the description, I'll post your website there so everyone can can follow and, and see what what source works best for them. Um, truly, again, Emily, thank you so much for your time, and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much. It was really fun. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Gateway brought to you by NIU's College of Business. Please make sure to subscribe to The Gateway. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are found. And if you are so inclined, please feel free to give us those five-star ratings, which help allow us to continue to bring wonderful guests to the gateway. Thank you all for listening. And remember to love always the promise of tomorrow today.